Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Dmitry Gurin joins us, a Ukrainian member of parliament. Mr. Gurin, thank you very much. How are you, sir? Thank you for inviting me, and uh, uh, good day. Uh, we are all okay. Uh, we have a war, but already almost 20 days, and we are a little bit used up to it. Uh, and uh, But it's hard. We are a civilized country. Uh, we try to uh, and try and go into a European family of nations. Uh, and uh, now we are under... Uh, it's not even an army against army. It's an act of mass murdering. So I lived in Mariupol during 15 years. And it was my school and my university. Both of them were destroyed. The, uh, my districts where I grew up were destroyed totally. And uh, even trees that I cleaned up uh, were cut and uh, burned in the fires because people prepare food on open fires. And there is no heating, electricity, uh, and water, and gas, uh, and uh, people are just living in basements uh, uh, under the multi-story buildings and uh, melt snow for water uh, and prepare food on the open fires, yes. And uh, uh, it's a siege. Uh, yesterday, they started to shoot from tanks to multi-story buildings. It is so horrific to hear this because four weeks ago, your cities, including your city of Mariupol, was a thriving metropolis where people went about their lives, had their plans, made, uh, you know, vacation plans. It was, and look at it today, and it is destroyed. Um, Mr. Gurin, you have said that the West re needs to realize that World War Three has begun. I'll ask you about that in a moment. But the news story today, one of the stories is, that 60 MiG-29s from Poland, Slovakia, and Bulgaria, along with 14 Su-25s, fighter planes from the Soviet Union, are being turned over to Ukraine pilots. Do you have any sense of that? Have, are you aware of that? Uh, I didn't comment it, and the only uh, thing that I want to say is that we are grateful for every help from uh, NATO countries and from countries themselves. Okay. Fair. The uh, the situation on the ground in, in Ukraine, now we have Russian missiles have hit a military training base 10 miles from the Polish border. So they're getting very close to Article 5 in, of the NATO agreements. Um, what is it that Ukraine needs most from the West, from NATO, right now? Right now, we uh, need the guarantees for the humanitarian corridors. When this war started, it was an army uh, against army war, just an ordinary, awful, but ordinary war. When they understood uh, uh, in, a, in a week that uh, they cannot beat us on the battlefield, they changed tactics. And uh, the last eight days, it's not the war anymore. It's mass murdering. And what is Mr. Putin is trying to do in Mariupol is uh, to start a hunger uh, for 350,000 people. All, all these uh, humanitarian corridors uh, that they are uh, promising to everybody, it's, total, uh, it's just a lie. They are not going to do it, and I am totally pessimistic about humanitarian corridors from Mariupol. 
So now it's uh, already act of uh, mass murdering. People in the medieval uh, situation uh, and uh, with a street fight and with a bomb in every 13 minutes during day and night. And uh, uh, artillery doesn't stop working. And that's the idea to show the whole Ukraine what uh, we be uh, if you uh, don't if you do what we say. Yeah, and it's really a story about freedom. Uh, and now it's the war uh, for us. It's the war war of existence of our existence as a nation. And uh, for the rest of the world, uh, you just have to understand that uh, we have uh, uncontrollable maniac now that give uh, to his soldiers at first permission. A week ago, they gave permission to the army to kill civilians. And in Mariupol, they have an order to kill every civilian trying to escape. So we have this situation. And uh, it's called World War Three. And the only difference for uh, European society and NATO countries now is when to join this war on the right side. And uh, the results of this decision is on which territory do you join, do you have this war, on Ukrainian territory, or when this rocket uh, uh, will hit the maternity hospital in Poland, in Wroclaw, for example. That is the question for you. Where is your line? And what we need right now is guarantees, any forms, and help for making humanitarian corridors because they don't, they cannot beat us on the battlefield, and they just decided if we all resist to kill us all. And first of all, our parents, our children, elderly, and we need these people because we will win on the battlefield with your help. Now you're doing extremely well. I saw a video of a captured Russian pilot a senior officer uh, saying on uh, on Ukraine television, telling his fellow Russian soldiers that the war is lost. Don't uh, don't uh, invade or don't go into Kiev because the war is lost. So that's a, a Russian pilot who was shot down. But what was so? Uh, and you talk about how the Russians are are uh, targeting civilians who are trying to flee. I saw a story earlier today about a Russian ambush of women and children who were trying to be evacuated out of Mariupol. That, that's a war crime, and, and the West needs to really step up. Our leaders in the Western countries have to step up and, and, and really take a significant and direct action. We're going to be speaking with the former FDA Associate Commissioner, Professor Peter Pitts, uh, who's gotten into this issue, the contentious issue, of ending the COVID mask mandates. It's a big debate. Provinces put an end to the compulsory mask wearing in most public venues this month. And Professor Pitts addressed this in a um, New York Post op-ed. And he writes in part, taking off your mask isn't a victory for the other side. It's a public health victory for us all. Professor Peter Pitts is the former Associate Commissioner of the United States Food and Drug Administration. He's the President of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest and a visiting professor at the University of Paris Medical School. He's also the author of Next Normal. That's Professor Pitts' new book. Peter, how are you? Thanks for coming on the program today. My pleasure, Roy. Thanks very much. Well, let's talk about uh, this and the op-ed you wrote in the New York Post. You write at the very beginning... Wearing surgical masks has replaced wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt as a social justice signal in post-
pandemic America. Explain, please. Well, you know, obviously, you know, the science is very clear right now. Uh, 50 states have all said we can begin to take our masks off. And yet, where I live in, in New York, uh, people want to keep their masks on. And I don't know whether it's kind of uh, pandemic PTSD or whether they feel that having their masks on is making a statement that they've always believed in science is kind of an anti-Trump signal. And that, that bothers me because it, this can't be seen as a political mechanism. It's, it's purely following the science. And the issue is you can't just follow the science when it concurs with your personal beliefs. You've got to follow it at all times. So I think that's the debate rearing up here, certainly in New York. So the CDC, the governor of New York, and the mayor of New York, which is again where you live, gave guidance on stopping wearing of masks. What is the guidance, and really how much pushback is there? Well, I think the most important thing to remember is what type of data are you looking at? You're looking at infection rates, you're looking at hospitalization rates, and you're looking at death rates. And certainly, you know, in the region of the country where I live, it's what the CDC calls a very green zone. All those numbers are very low, which means that we can take our masks off. So you know, it's safe, and a lot of people want to keep their masks on, and that's okay. People should do whatever uh, they need to to make themselves feel safe. But at a certain point, they can't stop other people from doing what the science says is appropriate, what the president says is appropriate, what the governor says is appropriate, what the mayor says is appropriate. Okay, so what happens when you and your wife go out in public in your area of New York City and you take off your masks, your masks are off, as the governor, as the mayor, as the CDC has said is okay to do. What happens? Well, uh, at best, we get uh, sideways, dirty glances, and at worst, people point their fingers at us and say, you should put on your masks, which I think, considering m- my job, is you know a little a little bit insulting. And when, and when I say to them, why do you say that? Do you want to talk about it? They, get, they just wave their hands and, and walk away. They don't, want, they don't want dialogue. They want to be seen as kind of mask-wearing social justice warriors, and that's not a good thing. So from the medical perspective, and you're a professor, a visiting professor of medicine at the University of Paris, from, from the medical perspective, former associate director of the FDA, from a medical perspective, is there an argument that is really sound that defends or supports the wearing of, of masks, continued wearing of masks? I'm not talking about individual choice, but is there an argument, a, public, a, medic, a medical argument to be made for continuing to wear the mask? Where we live in New York, there is no legitimate scientific argument for continuing to wear a mask unless you are a, high, a high-risk individual or riding mask transit. In all of the circumstances, the science is very clear, which is it's safe to take masks off. And it's also an opportunity for us to teach people the continued uh, importance of, of getting vaccinated. And we're, and we're missing this important teaching moment. Yeah, it's a big fight on social media as well here in the U.S. as well. It is. You know, it's uh, it's shocking to me that people just can't let go of of political animosity and kind of focus on what we all share, which is, you know, it's not so much the government telling us that we can take our masks off. This is a right that we have earned throughout the pandemic by doing the right thing, by being good citizens and neighbors. And now uh, some people feel that uh, it's not legitimate and they're wrong. When you hear the term follow the science, and I've seen that a couple of more than a couple of times, in the arguments and the debates on online about taking off the masks when the mask mandates expire. Let's follow the science. You address that in, uh, in, in your op-ed in the New York Post. Speak to that, please, Peter. 
you know, uh, in the U.S., when Joe Biden was elected, we all kind of stood up and said, finally, among other things that are going to change, science is finally back. We can follow the science. Unfortunately, it's kind of begun to be defined being, I'll follow the science if it agrees with how I feel uh, versus the reality. And it's funny because throughout the whole pandemic, people that were getting vaccinated and wearing masks would point to their fingers at those who weren't saying, you're not following the science. You're a bad person. Now that the situation is reversed, they're saying, no, even though the science says we can take our masks off, we're not. And that shows that we're good people and you're not. So it's reinforcing, I think, their need to be a little bit uh, highfalutin and holier than thou. And that's just going to drive people further apart. What we need in the U.S. is not more division. We need some community going on here. Have you ever felt threatened by anybody when they confront you about you not wearing a mask? I haven't felt physically threatened. Well, I guess if I had a different... Uh, psychological makeup, possibly I would. I don't like anybody stopping me who I don't know and pointing their finger in my face and, and uh, speaking meanly to me. I think that it's, uh, I mean, it certainly could be dangerous theoretically, but it's, it's certainly unpleasant and uh, isn't helping the situation. Yeah, you know, I'm actually surprised. I, I have to say this. I am surprised that there's this much controversy because I fully expected that when the mask mandates disappeared, people wouldn't be able to wait to rip those things off their faces. Oh, I certainly certainly couldn't wait. And let's face it, nobody likes wearing masks. It's not comfortable. It's not attractive. It it fogs up your glasses. It gets in your nose. People are not doing it because they enjoy it. People are doing it because they feel emotionally attached to these masks in a way that's, that's very peculiar. Yeah. Well, I'm so emotionally attached to mine that at 12.01 a.m. on March the 21st, I'm going to put one on at 11.59 p.m. just for the heck of it, and at 12.01 it's coming off, and then I won't put it on again, unless I'm in a situation like a hospital surrounding, or, um, you know, if I'm around people who are very, very scared about having, like, co-workers, if they're afraid of being around someone who doesn't have a mask on, then I'll wear a mask just out of uh, respect for other people. But for me to go out and do my thing, ain't going to be no mask, Peter. It's done. I certainly I feel, I feel the same way. And I, I, I'll repeat that with all the science, it should lower everybody's anxiety level. So the Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian Nurses Association issued a joint statement a couple of days ago, and uh, the statement says that Canada's health system is on life support. In fact, the headline is Canada's health system is on life support. Health workers call for urgent mobilization to address shortages, burnout, and backlog issues. Dr. Catherine Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, how are you? I always like to ask doctors how you are. (laughs) <laughs> good to talk to you, Roy. I'm I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on your show. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I mean, nobody ever asks a doctor, how are you? And we always want to say, take my blood pressure, take, give me a blood test, give me those, some kind of test because I don't feel well, so I always like to ask doctors. But before we get into detail from the CMA and the Canadian Nurses Association joint news release so about how serious this crisis is, we do know that healthcare in Canada prior to COVID, so we go back two and a half years, or just over two years, was under great stress already with 5 million Canadians having no primary physician and wait times were significantly concerning. So in an overall context, before details, how much worse has it gotten in the last two years? Yeah, I think 
you know, that is such an important point for people to understand is that the healthcare system has been failing for a long time and that is not new. But what happened is we had a system already really struggling and then it was put in a massive pressure cooker from COVID um, and it has exacerbated and worsened and just deepened those issues that were already very present. So, you know, no question, I think things have been going in the wrong direction for a long time. Um, And now this crisis, if anything, I think it's just really brought it much more to the forefront of people's minds because we've been hearing about healthcare almost daily now for two years. Yeah, and we know... I think the last number I saw that the number of backlogged surgeries was approaching 400,000. Is that correct? Oh, I, at least. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that's probably even a low number. So, yeah, it is literally hundreds of thousands of people waiting for surgery. And, you know, and I, I think, again, what's so important to think about is, is the people behind those numbers, you know, because these are not surgeries that are nice to have surgeries. These are people with chronic pain that can't walk, have arthritis, you know, have earlier stages of cancer that may be progressing. I mean, these are serious things and there's been huge impacts in terms of people's quality of life uh, because of these very extended waits. So now this also impacts, and this is one of the key points you make in the news release, the Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian Nurses Association, this impacts the frontline healthcare providers the doctors, the nurses, the paramedics, everyone who works on the front lines of healthcare is being affected by this. Shortage of numbers of people, massive numbers of cases, huge backlog. And you write in the in this in this release, without immediate action, there's little hope for the future. It's very concerning. I mean, no, this is, is dire. Really yes, concerning. Um, you know, and and I think that's the thing is, you know, we've been happy to see that the number of people needing hospitalization for COVID has been decreasing, which is great. But when you talk to people working the hospital, the hospitals are no less full. What they're seeing is those spots now are being taken up by people who did not have health care during the pandemic, whose chronic conditions have gotten worse. So most hospitals are still running 110%, 120% over capacity all the time. Um, so, you know, it, it's not that one problem went away or, or it's clearly not even gone yet, but maybe was improving a bit and okay, the pressure's off. No, the pressure's dialed right in. And I think that's what's so deeply worrisome is there's just no real relief in sight. And up till now, we haven't really seen a solid plan about what our government's going to do to help us move through this and move out ahead and actually have a healthcare system that's going to work for people. Well, unfortunately, healthcare has for generations now been a political football. It's been, it got attention or gets attention during election time. And then later on, it's just, well, you know, we'll just throw money, uh, a certain amount of money at, at everybody. And then we'll say, We've done our, our responsibility. We've, we've, we've done our due diligence. But you talk about in this release what the key priorities are to create, quote, a robust, um, well, I don't, I'm getting right into the, into the individual pieces here. Tell us what the, the key priorities are, Dr. Smart. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it would probably be a bit shocking for your listeners to know that even though healthcare is arguably the single biggest expenditure of different levels of government, there is no clear plan in terms of human health resources and how we move forward, a data infrastructure to allow us to actually monitor the care that we're giving, be accountable for it, look at quality and make decisions based on that data and that feedback. So it's really amazing to think that that plan just 
doesn't exist. We're kind of shooting in the dark. And, and I think that comes back to what you said earlier. You know, if you get, oh, let's put more money here, let's more, put more money there. But how do we know what we're getting for those investments when we have no plan of what it is we're even trying to achieve and no data to actually monitor it? So, you know, when we met with uh, the nurses and other healthcare professionals at our summit, we're hearing those same things. You know, no one's seeing a plan in their area of practice. We're really calling on the government to create a national health workforce plan. We're calling on the government to create a data infrastructure so that we can be monitoring where we're going in terms of human health resources plan for it, but also be monitoring what's happening in terms of care in the system so that we can know where we need to be making investments and be accountable for the investments that are being made. Um, so those were two of the big things that we think need to really happen right away. And then the deeper, broader issue is really understanding that there does need to be systems transformation. You know, you, you opened the show by talking about 5 million Canadians without access to primary care. Well, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is the old systems of primary care that started in, you know, in the 60s and 70s don't work in our current world. They don't work with an aging population, increasing complexity of healthcare problems. And we need to reimagine what primary care looks like if we want people to continue working in that area and if we want Canadians to have access to that type of care. But again, that's going to take, you know, rolling up the sleeves, getting to the table with, with actual people, family doctors who are experts in this, and coming up with solutions collaboratively. And at this point, that's, we're just not seeing that happen on the level that it needs to happen for it to be meaningful. Yeah, uh, one of your predecessors, actually several of your predecessors have said to me over the years that not only is do we have an aging population, but uh, by extension, it just makes sense that we have an aging physician population as well. And uh, a statistic from a few years ago suggested that doctors are retiring more quickly than the general population. So that just makes the situation worse if we have 5 million people out of 37 million who are without a family doctor. And doctors are retiring more quickly than the general population is. Not that you stop needing health care after you retire, but it's a statistic that comes into play. All those numbers don't, they don't speak well for the, certainly not for the immediate future if, if they're not ad- addressed. No, absolutely. And and the National Physician Health Survey that we just conducted at the CMA, we had 42% of physicians say they're planning to cut down their work hours over the next two years and another 18% that are thinking about it. So it's a huge issue. And, you know, again, when there is no actual plan for the number of physicians that are needed for the population, recognizing that, you know, this physicians are wanting to start to have some work-life integration. You know, the traditional way of working 100 and 120 hours a week for your whole life what I like to say is you know sacrificing yourself on the altar of medicine people are not necessarily willing to do that anymore which I think is appropriate no one should be living their life like that but we have a system that's designed to expect that level of altruism and self-sacrifice and that's not going to be sustainable we need a system where healthcare professionals obviously can work hard but can work in a reasonable way so that there's some balance there. And I think if we're not accounting for that in the system, it's going to fail. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. Let me just uh, give you one more question here as we start to uh, run a little short on time. But we've often talked about looking at international examples of healthcare delivery. And we've looked at hybrid systems that work in other countries, and they work quite well. And and there was a study done by the CMA of hybrid system or other international systems of healthcare, and some recommendations were made. What happened to that? Is it just gathering dust somewhere? Are we waiting for another study? What's going on? 
Well, I think, you know, like you said, well, part of our challenge in our healthcare system is there's been many studies and many different recommendations, and they all are sort of sitting on a shelf gathering dust. Um, but I, I think a big part of the problem, right, is it's challenging to solve a problem when you have not acknowledged the problem exists. So we have a failing healthcare system. We have a healthcare system that's yeah. on life support. But of yeah. course, our politicians don't necessarily want to say that out loud because well, that's, there's not that's going not to be a politician or a leader who's going to get up and say under my watch, the healthcare system's not working. No, <laughs> because but that's if you don't admit and own the problem, yeah, right? How exactly. Do you start to solve it, and I think exactly. that's why we keep ending up here. Is is no one wants to really be honest with Canadians? Yes, this is a crisis. And, and we need to move to that stage. Then once we've admitted it, then we can find and actualize these solutions. But right now we're still in this sort of, you know, r- rose-colored glasses. Oh, it's going to be fine. Well, you know, it, it's actually not fine. Um, and okay. so I'm hoping that we can start to see that. Okay, I'm going to start a collection of rose-colored glasses. We're going to go around and just take them away from people. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> My good friend Dan McTagg, the president, founder of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal member of Parliament, 18 years in in Parliament, had very significant roles in the government, but now his role is to advise us about what's going to happen to our fuel costs. And yeah, gasoline is a huge success, a huge issue, but diesel is just as, if not more, of an issue because that affects not only what you drive. But it affects what you buy and how much what you buy costs, and that includes your food and aviation fuel and uh, fuel to run ships, bunker oil. Uh, we, to- we were told yesterday, uh, Dan, by one of our guests who's an international manufacturer exporter, he's got, he's got uh, containers everywhere in the world parked because he can't move them. And instead of 4000 bucks, it's 20000 bucks. And he says he's expecting to see, if I have this correctly, shipping costs on the on the ocean to triple and aviation to quadruple. Wow. Big, eh? Well, big, and it's uh, the inflationary bubble. I, look, this is uh, this was predicted. We, you and I talked about this, not just you know, last month, not just last year, but we've been warning this would be the case. A uh, country that decides that it wants to get out of the business of producing that which the world desperately needs, um, that we fell for the head fake, that the green reset, the great reset, the build back better, the you know resilient could do without oil and gas. We were kidding ourselves, and we knew that. But uh, the uh, opinion leaders uh, simply wouldn't have anything of that, uh, apart from printing money, as uh, Pierre Polyev has pointed out. Uh, we made a strategic error in saying no to oil and gas, uh, and it's the very thing today that uh, that many countries, especially those in Europe, are desperate for. And yet we have a prime minister prancing around the world saying, oh, no, we, we'll do without, we'll do without. This is absolute madness. It's an inability to read the room and read the tea leaves. They got it wrong. They should apologize, drop the carbon tax, and begin the process of uh, building not one, not two, but at least three pipelines to get this country back on its feet. Email from a listener this morning. Roy, I am a semi-truck owner operator at present fuel prices at present fuel prices it's costing me about seventeen hundred dollars every time i fuel up on average and i do that three times a week if the carbon tax increases and the heavy fuel tax is added to this it's going to be hard to survive the company i work for has been raising their fuel surcharges but i know that they can only get raise or can only raise surcharges so much if they want to keep their customers it's going to be a hard go for everyone if something doesn't change my friend ron foxcroft told me 
that his Chuck Phillips are generally between a thousand to twelve hundred dollars now, and fluke transport doesn't cover massive distances, but for drivers who do the ultra long runs with two hundred uh, two one hundred and fifty gallon fuel tanks, mm-hmm. that's that's big, and and you can't expect the drivers to absorb it. The manufacturers and the uh, retailers are not going to absorb it all. They might be able to absorb some of it, and it's going to come back down to the consumer, the user. And, and, and for the government to not, I mean, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me for them to, to just not cut back on the uh, carbon tax. At the very least, make a foray that is going to resonate with people like Jason Kenney's doing, Scott Mullen. Or as France is doing. I mean, look, it doesn't matter where you go. These guys are still living as if it's 2015, 2016. Uh, all those aspirational things are nice, except that when it comes to uh, preventing the economy from getting back on its feet and you, you cause it to be stillborn, uh, how are you going to pay down your debt? How are you going to afford the cost of food? Uh, you know, I've talked about this, and you've had you know very preeminent people on that subject uh, so Dr. Chalavois in particular, a friend of yours uh, and his station all the time. But I, I do worry about the uh, willingness by some to suppress what is happening to most Canadians who are now starting to realize this is serious. Uh, this is starting to get to the point where, uh, you know, it's not about governments being able to come out and provide you money to get you through the pandemic. That hopefully is behind us. We now face the very, very blunt truth that years of neglect destroying our oil and gas sector, raising the price of everything is without consequence. And I think a lot of people are starting to say that that's not the case. Yeah, and Dan, it's, it's not just about getting a lower uh, number when you fill up your vehicle. It's not just about that. There are many, many other factors uh, at play here. And as we've said, and as you just talked about, well, everything that we buy is affected by what happens to the price of of, of fuel of energy it's it's yep. all affected it's 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 a chain i there was something i wanted to mention and it got in one side of my brain and, and headed out the yeah. other but uh, there was some specific point i wanted to make but it's, it's kind of gone now but but it's it's all tied together and i can't for the life of me understand oh you know here's the point some people will say to me and i've seen emails saying so what's the what, what's the difference i mean how much of an impact would it be roy if they lowered the the carbon tax, or they remove the carbon tax. It just makes it easier for you to buy gasoline for that thing you drive. Um, but it's not the case. It's 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 not just about the consumer. There's a lot involved here. There is, and you know, beyond ten cents, which will be thirteen cents or twelve point five uh, within two two and a half weeks. It is also the hand in hand regulations that are making it are that are making it very difficult for Canadian companies. To, uh, to make headway, uh, to be able to compete against uh, other nations. I mean, look, Schneider, a big third largest trucking firm in North America, packed up and left. They left for a variety of reasons, but I have an unfairly good understanding that a lot of it was due to the fact that, hey, they can pick up uh, you know, X amount of fuel in New York State, do their business in Canada, and drive right back if that's what they want to do. And this is uh, more and more common than we possibly know. But I think the other one is the Canadian dollar. It absolutely is pathetic. 127, 128 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar when oil is over $100 a barrel. That's never happened, at least in the past 30 to 40 years. We are doing untold damage and discouraging people from coming in and investing. Not just that, 
the mining, the forestry, the manufacturing, all of the agricultural sectors. Even if you don't like oil and gas, you don't want to talk about it, you got to talk about the other industries because they're the things that make this country tick. And if you're going to destroy them and saddle them with high prices, good luck and good uh, and watch out because your country is about to face an economic crisis on a scale we've never seen. All right, so look, one of the things that I hear is you complain about the price of gasoline in Canada. Look at the good life we have. Look at how other people in the rest of the world are living and the challenges they face. So stop whining. Recognize that you have it better than anybody else. And just go ahead and just spend the extra money and budget for it and get and get around it. So my response has been 53, and then I, I write 53% of Canadians have said they're within $200 and not being able to pay their monthly bills. And then I don't press send because I know what I'm going to get in reply. So, Dan, when you hear people say, and I'm sure you have, that we're whining and complaining about something when we still have it better than anybody else, what's your response? We have it better because we have affordable, reliable, clean energy. And not, not just talking oil and gas. I'm obviously referring to nuclear and uh, hydroelectric. Uh, we've got it good here because we've invested and because we've, take, we've, we've taken a very uh, inhospitable climate-type country and made it something that's, uh, that's possible. And it happened because of the miracle of hydrocarbons, of oil and gas. And you know, people can tap dance and deny and do whatever they want. Uh, these people are denying reality that is about them. And so if you think that our prices should be like Europe or perhaps like some places in Asia or countries that are, you know, uh, do not have the kind of richness in, you know, resource richness that we do and that we should somehow, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, harm ourselves to get to those levels just so we want to be trendy and, uh, you know, kind of talk you want to have at, you know, various Tony parties. Good luck with that, because when you start losing the middle class in this country, you lose your country. And yeah, there will always be some rich people, but that gulf between rich and poor will continue to grow. And uh, it's that kind of chasm that uh, that leads to uh, political instability. And if that's what people are asking for, I'd su- suggest that they become, and, and to be very polite, become less ignorant and start to you know smell the coffee as to what's actually driving your economy. Because it sure isn't electric vehicles, windmills, and uh, expensive solar panels. It is, in fact, everything that we have is based on uh, the uh, access and affordability uh, and the reliability of uh, oil. We're the only country in the world with such a large asset that's willing to to despoil it and uh, to simply turn our back on it. We do so at our own risk. Well, I can't remember the organization that, uh, that came up with this number, but I saw it not so long ago. That in 50 years or so, the world is still going to be using uh, something in the neighborhood of 100 million barrels of oil a day. Yep. That's that's if that's if the the uh, green energy programs move move ahead at optimal speed and pace. There'll still be this massive requirement and need for for oil. It's not going away. And this yeah. country has the ability to be a an exporter and a supplier, which would help uh, parts of the world that need absolutely need to be able to depend on a reliable partner to provide the energy and it also would fuel our economy and pay for social programs and that the national health program which is in really dire straits according to dr Catherine smart who was on this program earlier today the president of the canadian medical association so there's international benefit and there's national benefit and there's international need for the oil that we have yeah i mean Contrast with countries, there are still 
you know, burning coal or dung in order, and, and, and people are getting sick. Uh, look, th- this is not a game anymore. And I think Europeans are the first ones that will tell you, including Boris Johnson, saying maybe we, uh, we went about this whole idea of trivializing and attacking energy uh, from the wrong perspective. If nothing else, where we can agree is that Canada should be leading the, the, the charge in terms of access to its hydrocarbons, its oil, its gas. Because the alternative, I think for every person today that is concerned about geopolitical issues, and they are paramount, has to consider that the energy crisis that we're seeing has given way to a security crisis. And much of that is because the world believes that it can walk away from fossil fuels while allowing the Irans and the Venezuelas and now the Russias of this world to call the shots. I think we, you know, I think we, our heart is in the right place, but our head sure, is, sure isn't. What's your prediction about what's going to happen to the price of energy, uh, first of all, at the wholesale level, and then for the consumer in the next, I don't know, days, weeks, months? What do you well, see? I think we're going to $150 oil, possibly $180, uh, and it's going to stay there. Uh, and it's going to stay there as long as we continue to have leadership in this country saying uh, we're going to continue to have more higher carbon taxes. By the way, you have another one coming. Uh, we know on April 2nd, on April Fool's Day, many of the provinces, it's a backstop, two and a half cents a litre. But the same government wants to implement, and it will do so by December, a second carbon tax, the clean fuel standard. But even beyond that, it's not ready to throw in the towel. It just costs you and I several billion dollars to buy a pipeline called the Trans Mountain Expansion that would have otherwise been built by the private sector. The company was going to sue the daylights of the Canadian government, took the, you know, the four or five billion we gave them, six billion, went to the United States and built two or three pipelines. It, it is, it, you know, we're not attracting capital in this country. We are bleeding capital. And if anybody thinks that that can be sustainable economically or otherwise, uh, I think they need a quick look, crash course in economics. But either way, we're looking at high, sustained, abnormally, uh, you know, painful prices and it'll it'll make its way throughout the spectrum of the economy. And, uh, you know, for many people, I have to say, uh, I feel bad for you, but a lot of you voted for this, and you knew it was going to happen. You took our words, and you simply trivialized it. You ignored it. Now you're going to pay for it. And I, I, there's no other way of explaining other than that. I hope to goodness we can turn things around quickly. We need three more pipelines, two international waters to help stabilize the world. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.